Okay, so this is not a quiz, but I do want to begin by at least shortly or briefly reviewing our kind of timeline of the whole Old Testament. So you have a few hooks to, to hang our hats on tonight. Um, so what happens at the very beginning? of the biblical history. Creation, four things that happened to the whole world. Creation, the fall, the flood, and the Tower of Babel, right? Starts with a cosmic story, things that happened to the whole world. So I'm calling that beginnings, the creation of the world, its fall, the restart um, with the flood, and then the Tower of Babel. And then the whole story zeroes in on one family. Whose family is it? Abraham, right? And the next chapter in the story is the patriarchs and the matriarchs. So the families of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob, who's renamed Israel and has how many sons? Twelve sons, and that's where we get the twelve tribes of Israel, right? Um, so because of famine and because um, the Lord is clever, they end up in Egypt, right? Joseph rescues them from famine in Canaan, which was common, as we talked about last week. And they end up in Egypt um, for hundreds of years. And what happens next? The Exodus. the Exodus. Yeah, well, first they end up being slaves in Egypt. I think I forgot that part once. But um, they end up being enslaved in Egypt, and they cry out to the Lord. And he rescues them by providing what leader? Moses, right? So Joe takes him into Egypt, and Mo takes him out of Egypt in what we call the Exodus, which just means the exit. So they leave Egypt together after some really obvious, amazing acts of the Lord to get them out, including the plagues and the division of the Red Sea, right? And they end up immediately in Disney World, right? No. So where, where do they end up next? In the wilderness. And they end up, by their own fault, um, spending an entire 40 years in the wilderness. But what are the highlights of their time in the desert between Egypt and the Promised Land? Oh, I took it off too soon. What are the highlights, two top highlights? Yeah, the giving of the law at where? Mount Sinai, yep. And, right, so God gives them an identity as a people. They've been slaves for hundreds of years and he gives them a new identity and a ready-made culture, right? So we talked about this. They have food laws and traditions. They have new holidays. They have ways to dress. They have things to sing. Um, in the law, he's shaping their culture to reflect his character. And then in his instructions about the tabernacle, he says he wants to live with them, and he makes ways for that to be possible. And much of the law is providing for the fact that he's a holy God and they are not holy people. How are they going to share a neighborhood, basically? How are they going to live together without them being destroyed by God's perfect holiness? And a lot of the law makes provision for that cohabitation, okay? And the tabernacle is part of that. All right, so after their time in the wilderness, what happens next? Yeah, the conquest. So the Lord finally brings them into this land that he promised to their family all the way back here to Abraham. It was part of the initial promise to give him this land. But he said he wasn't going to give it to Abraham's family until what? We just mentioned this briefly last time. Does anybody remember? Until the sin of the people in Canaan had reached its full. That's what he says to Abraham all the way back in Genesis 15. I'm not going to give you the land until the sin of the Amorites has reached its full. In other words, until I'm ready to judge them anyway, until they're going to lose the land anyway. 
then I'll give it to you. So it's not just a kind of random, let's boot these folks out and bring these folks in. The Lord had something going on, his own story with these people. And it's not until that story is at the right moment um, that he brings the people of Israel into Canaan, into the land of Canaan. So they take this land slowly and imperfectly, um, and they are led by a series of what kind of leaders in their first years in the land? Judges. We call them judges. They weren't just judging, although some of them did some of that. They were more like um, heroes, rescuers. So God's people has this history in this, in this season of their life of kind of living in a downward spiral where they trust the Lord and follow him, and then they decide not to trust the Lord and follow him, and they fall into sin, and as a result, they get into trouble, and they cry out to the Lord, and he sends them a judge or a rescuer who brings peace again um, to the land and restoration between God and the people, and then the same thing happens over and over and over again. So this period of time ruled by the judges, and the refrain throughout the end of the book of Judges is that in those days, the people of Israel had no king, and everyone did what? What was right in his own eyes. Yep. So um, at the end of that, the Lord kind of mercifully ends that um, by giving them a king. That's a messy story. But in the end, they get a king. And the kingdom of the people of Israel is a whole kingdom ruled by, um, you have a cheat sheet here, three kings. There are only three kings who rule over the whole kingdom of Israel. It's a David sandwich, right? So the three kings are, I've just cheated for you, Saul, David, and Solomon, okay? Those three kings rule over the entire nation, but just for their time. And then the kingdom is divided, yep, because of the foolishness of Rehoboam's son, who cares more about seeming macho than he does about ruling wisely. Um, so the kingdom is divided into two parts. Get your thumbs ready. Two parts of the kingdom are north, south, Israel, Judah, 192008. Okay, if this is new, do it with us the second time around, and then we'll tell you what it means, okay? North, south, Israel, Judah, 192008. So the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom is Israel, southern kingdom is Judah. Northern Kingdom has 19 total kings, Southern Kingdom 20. Northern Kingdom has zero kings who follow the Lord with their whole heart. And the Southern Kingdom has eight. So North, South, Israel, Judah, 1920-08. I still have to, when I'm reading through kings and I'm like, wait, who are we talking about? I still have to use the trick. So you might never outgrow that one. Um, okay, so the story of each of these two kingdoms ends with what sad event? Yeah, captivity, exile. So the northern kingdom is exiled into Assyria, A, in, in 722 B.C., and the southern kingdom is, is taken into exile in which kingdom? Babylon, Babylon right? So north, south, A, B, Assyria and Babylon in 586 B.C. The northern tribes we sadly never hear from again, except for the small group of them who are left in Samaria, and intermarry with other Assyrians and become part of the people group, the Samaritans. Um, but apart from that, we don't hear from them again. But the people who are taken into exile into Babylon, many of them return. 
Um, I just gave it away. So what's the next season? Return to the land of Judah. The Lord brings a remnant back to the land of Judah. Um, and there they rebuild the temple and um, begin the process of starting to follow the Lord again. Now, what are they anxious about when they come back? What do they really want to make sure they don't do? Yeah, they don't want to disobey the law ever again because they don't want to go into exile ever again. This is why, like, timeouts are effective with children because they're not fun. So once you finish one, you think, okay, I'm never, well, theoretically, I'm never going to do that again, right? <clears throat> so it's during this period of time that we see the rise of what we're calling Judaism. So they say, that was terrible. We broke the law repeatedly and went into exile. We never want that to happen again. And the many Jewish leaders end up adding all these extra rules um, in addition to the law at, that was given at Sinai, which they themselves referred to as a fence around the law to try to keep anybody from actually breaking the law ever again. Now, when Jesus comes on the scene, that's the next bit, the um, appearance of our Messiah. When he comes, a lot of his disagreements with the Jewish leaders about the law are actually about these things that they've added to the law. Um, so we talked about that a little more the first time. Okay, so just briefly to solidify all this, I want to talk a little bit about the prophets um, that we learned about last time. So go ahead and stand up. We'll just review this, and then we'll get on to some new, new ideas tonight. Okay, so we have several prophets. We're trying to keep them straight. You are now standing in Jerusalem facing north, okay? Now what do southerners say to northerners in January when it's beautiful in Florida? Ha, ha, ha. Okay, so we're looking at the northerners, the northern kingdom of Israel. H-A, ha, ha. The two prophets who prophesied in the northern kingdom are Hosea and Amos. Yep, Hosea and Amos. Ha, ha, ha. Okay, so our, our enemies, the Assyrians, are over there in the northeast. And what do you say to your enemies if you're four? <laughs> nah, 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 nah. Okay, two Two prophets, um, two Assyria are Jonah and Nahum, N-A-H. They both have N-A-H in their names. I know it's a stretch, but <laughs> Jonah and Nahum um, prophesy to the Assyrians, okay? I want you to turn straight east and wave and say, hi, Ed. Hi, hi Ed. Okay, so we're looking at Babylon now. Who is it who prophesies over in Babylon? Ezekiel, good, and Daniel, yep, Ezekiel and Daniel over in Babylon, hi, Ed, okay, so then we're going to turn around and face the south, who's in the south, the Edomites, yeah, that's right, Stephen Kwan, <laughs> the Edomites cheered on the Babylonians when they were sacking the temple in Jerusalem, that was not a good thing to do. So we turn to the south and say, oh, bad Edom. Oh, oh bad Edom. Edom. Who's the prophet who speaks to the Edomites? Obadiah. Oh, bad Edom. He's talking to, to Edomites. Okay. Then return to Jerusalem. Okay. When the Lord says it's time to come back to Jerusalem from exile, um, he makes it happen, and hazam, we're back in Jerusalem, okay? So who are the three prophets who prophesied to Jerusalem after the return? Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. There's so many 
H's and Z's, I know, it's confusing. Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, Hazam. They're back in Jerusalem, and those are the three prophets who prophesy then, okay? And the rest are in Judah in the south. That's process of elimination. So have a seat. Um, speaking of the return from Jerusalem, we have three waves of return. I forgot this before, but we'll just do this. Get it in your heads. Um, three waves of the return. So they actually come back in three groups of people. Um, the first group comes back under um, Zerubbabel. <laughs> Sorry. Um, Zerubbabel, and he helps them rebuild the temple. The second group that we see are the people that Ezra speaks to and he calls them to new holiness in the land. And the third um, wave of return is under the leadership of Nehemiah and they rebuild the walls. So we remember it this way, a Zerubbabel temple. Remember, you know, here's the church, here's the steeple, open the doors and see all the people. See, you never knew you would use that again, but here we are. Zerubbabel temple, Ezra people, Nehemiah walls. Let's do that again, okay? Zerubbabel temple, Ezra people, Nehemiah walls. Okay, so three waves of return. I'm just hoping that if you hear that a few times, it might might stick one of them. Okay, so this is our big picture of what God has is has done in the world before the arrival of Jesus the Messiah. Okay, He creates a world which falls away from Him. And he begins to slowly bring it back to himself by choosing one family which becomes one nation that's supposed to reflect his character to the world. And by interacting with them in a way full of truth and judgment and forgiveness and mercy, a way that's going to lead them to recognize the salvation that he's planning to bring. But this is what I want to focus in on the end of our timeline tonight. Um, and ask the question, what about Jesus? What, what's the connection between Jesus and the God of the Old Testament. So we have half an hour. It should work fine, right? Not too much to talk about. Well, I remember a day when I was a junior in high school when my history teacher um, just kind of mentioned offhand casually in class that Jesus never actually claimed that he was God. You know, he never specifically said that, said my teacher. Um, the idea that Jesus was God was kind of a concept that his friends came up with and that after his death it kind of slowly um, caught on and, and picked up some speed. Now this wasn't a new argument, um, but it was new to me and I remember that it really threw me for a loop. So I went home and I scoured through my Bible looking for a place in the New Testament when Jesus actually said, hi everyone, I'm God. That's how I wanted him to say it, and he never did. None of his statements sounded like that to me. Um, fortunately, I had some wise mentors who pointed out to me gently that what matters most in this case is not how Jesus' statements sounded to me, um, but how they sounded to the people he was talking to at the time in the first century. And those people wanted to stone him for blasphemy. So, for example, in the Gospel of John, in chapter 10, we read... Um, that the Jews answered Jesus, we are going to stone you for blasphemy because you, being a man, make yourself God. Or in Mark 14 at Jesus' trial, the high priest tears his garments and says, what further witnesses do we need? You've heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. So 
what was it that Jesus said to make these people think that he was claiming to be God, to be this God? Well, I want to look briefly at two of these um, tonight. But before we look at the first one, we have to rewind a little bit to the prequel. Um, do you remember, we haven't talked about it very specifically together, but um, you may remember the story, the time when Moses called to bring these people out of Egypt, right? He's in the desert tending sheep, um, and he sees a burning bush. And as he approaches the burning bush, the Lord calls Moses um, and speaks to him and calls him to bring the people out of Egypt. In the midst of that little chat, Moses has a question for God. And he says, if I come to the people of Israel, in other words, you're sending me to go to Egypt and tell them these crazy things. If I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what's his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, what? Do you remember what he says at that point? I am. I am who I am. And the Lord says, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So Moses says to God, what's your name? And God says, I am. Now, that was a famous story, right? So the Jews in the first century knew that this was God's name. Um, and it's actually even a more common name for God in the book of Isaiah than it was earlier in the Bible. Um, it kind of picks up steam. So then Jesus comes on the scene and listen to what he says to them um, in John 8. We'll look at a couple examples, but we'll start here. In John 8, Jesus says, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, uh, You are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. So when the Jews heard Jesus say, I am, they knew what it meant that he was claiming to be the I am, the God of Israel. That is like crazy audacious, right? The God who said, I am to Moses in the burning bush. And Jesus says, before Abraham was even born, I am. He actually says, I am over and over and over again in all kinds of different situations. But I think one of the most dramatic is on the last night of his life. Um, in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before his execution, Judas, one of his disciples, arrives with a group of soldiers and officers carrying weapons. So if you have a Bible in front of you, go ahead and turn to John 18. John 18, verses 3 through 6 is what we're going to be looking at. So does somebody want to shout out the Pew Bible page number? Page 904 in the hardbacks? Okay, and it's something like 624 in, this, in the paperback. Okay, John 18. So let's start in verse 3. Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lan lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Okay, does anybody have a footnote in their Bible at that statement? What does your footnote say? Greek says, I am. Yeah. So they've smoothed it over in the English a little bit, so it doesn't sound 
like it doesn't have a you know object, but um, or a predicate, but um, but in the Greek, Jesus just says to them, "I am." So Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Okay, these are soldiers. These were officers, right? And when Jesus says, I am, they literally fell over. Look, just picture that. You have this whole regiment of soldiers, and they say, we're looking for Jesus. And he says, I am, and they all fall to the ground. He was calling himself by God's name, and I think there was probably something overwhelming about the way that he said it, maybe even something supernatural about the way that he said it. Um, But he was saying, I'm God. Well, what else did Jesus say that made people think he was claiming to be God? I want to rewind again um, to the history of Israel for a second. In the kingdom of Israel, so in this period starting really here, but it goes on throughout the rest of the story. Um, The term father was a term that was associated with God. So first, God was a father to Israel's kings, right? And Israel's kings were called his sons. Um, So for example, in 2 Samuel 7, the Lord says to King David, I will raise up offspring after you, and I will establish your offspring after you, and I will establish his kingdom. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So you see this over and over again with the relationship between God and the king as a father-son relationship. Um, Or Solomon prays in Psalm 72, Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. David cries in Psalm 89, You are my father, my God. Um, And by the time we get to the ministry of the prophets, people begin to understand that God is not just a father to the kings, but he's actually a father to all of his people. So Isaiah says, In Isaiah 63, you, O Lord, are our father, our father. And in Jeremiah, God says, I'm a father to Israel. Malachi writes, have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? So the creator God is the father of all the Israelites. That's the picture we get in the prophets. And then Jesus is born in Israel. And in John 10, he says, I and the father are one. Right? So he's identifying himself with the God who created the world, who created Israel. This is not lost on his audience. Because if you go back and look at John 10, what happens when he says this is that the Judeans pick up stones to stone him for blasphemy. They, they understood what he was saying. Okay, It's sometimes not as clear to us. Um, but they were ready to hear that in the way that he meant it. So Jesus did claim to be God, maybe not in, just in ways that my 16-year-old self kind of needed a little help to understand. Um, but his miracles, his character, his resurrection validated that claim. But here's the thing. Jesus didn't just claim to be divine in some, like, general, abstract, we are all sons of God kind of way, right? He specifically claimed to be Yahweh, to be the God of Israel, right? The, he claimed himself to be the image of the invisible God. That's how the New Testament speaks of him anyway. Um, The invisible God who made the world, who chose the family of Abraham, who rescued the people from Egypt, who gave them the law, who gave them the land, who led them through their leaders and brought them back into the promised land, right? This is the God who talked to Moses face to face. This is the God who parted the Red Sea. This is the God who um, wrote his instruction, his law for his people. Um, Jesus claimed to be that God, Yahweh, the God of Israel. 
And I just want to think about this a little bit for the rest of our time together tonight. And here's why. Um, I'm sure we've all heard people say, and sometimes we think this ourselves, um, that there's a big difference between the God of the Old Testament and that we see, you know, the God of Israel that we see in the Old Testament, and Jesus, um, the Word become flesh. I actually think this is our biggest issue these days when it comes to Jesus, seeing Jesus as God. Often it's not that hard for us to believe, I mean, sure it is sometimes, that Jesus is God. But how is he this God, right? How is he Israel's God? How is he the God of the Old Testament? Um, and the idea that, we'll hear, that we hear pretty commonly, it goes like this, basically, that the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath. He's angry. He's grumpy. He's judgmental. And then when Jesus comes along, we suddenly see that God is nice. He's a God of love and mercy. Um, Jesus just seems nicer than, than God used to seem. Um, and I just want to say a couple things about that sort of dichotomy, that line of thinking. Um, and then we're going to get into a few specifics, but a couple things generally. Um, First of all, of course, it's a pretty two-dimensional view of both the Old Testament and the New Testament, right? Like, there's so much mercy in the Old Testament um, that we even get uh, God depicting himself as a husband who gets cheated on over and over and over again and, like, always takes his wife back no matter what she's done, right? So that's Hosea, for example. So how can you look at that and just say that there's no mercy, right? Um, and conversely, there's a ton of conversation about judgment in the New Testament. Um, we tend to read it less, and we like to skip over it. But Jesus, for example, talks about hell more than anyone else in the Bible does, right? There are 20 warnings about hell in the New Testament, and 16 of them come from Jesus' mouth. It's like um, John always likes to say, it's like Jesus is like, I'll take this one, guys. You know, <laughs> like, this is hard. Let me, let me be the one to talk about this. Um, so there's a real threat of mercy in the Old Testament, and there's very frank, honest conversation about judgment in the New Testament. And of course, and John alluded to this on Sunday, but that's of course because mercy and judgment are not disconnected, right? So the impression that we get from the scriptures is that all preaching about judgment is for the purpose of bringing repentance and rescue, right? It's clear. We're looking at the book of Jonah right now. It's super clear in Jonah. God says to Jonah, go to Nineveh and prophesy judgment against it, for their evil has come up against me. And Jonah doesn't want to do it. Why wouldn't he want to do that? The Ninevites were his enemies, right? Go tell them they're wrong. Okay, you know. But it's because he, why didn't he jump at the chance to go preach judgment against them? Well, first of all, it was probably life-threatening. But we find out his real, his core reason later in the book, in chapter 4, when he's finally gone to Nineveh, he preaches against their evil, they repent, the Lord forgives them. And Jonah complains, Lord, isn't this what I said when I was still at home? This is in chapter 4. That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I know that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. In other words, I didn't want to preach judge, judgment to them because I knew you would forgive them when they repented. Because that's why I didn't want to do it. You know, that's the point of preaching judgment. It's not just, you know, hell and brimstone for the sake of it, right? Doom and gloom. You preach warning so that people will repent and be reconciled to a loving God. So Jonah preached judgment, and what the people got was mercy. Does that make sense? Those two things are connected. They're not like opposite ends of the spectrum. 
judgment. So when God talks about judgment, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, it's a loving choice to warn us for the sake of our survival, for our protection. Those, those things aren't disconnected. But it's true that the general tone of the Old Testament and the New Testament can feel a bit different um, in some ways. The Old Testament, and I would say especially the preaching of the prophets, can sound pretty harsh to us. Um, sometimes the Lord uses a harsh tone of voice about his people's rebellion. And you've heard me talk about this before, so this may be familiar to some of you. Um, but they were playing with fire. They were toying with forms of idolatry that included infant sacrifice and um, basically human, yeah, human abuse, prostitution, things that were just awful, awful, awful. And God cared for the people who were being hurt by these things. And so he uses a pretty hard tone of voice. Um, it's like the kind of tone of voice you use with your child when they're reaching for the stove instead of like getting Play-Doh on the carpet. Does that make sense? Like there's a different, the stakes are high. And you hear that um, harshness, that, that alarm um, in the Lord's voice in the Old Testament. And I've used this example before, but to me it sounds like the tone of voice that a parent uses when their child runs out into the street. Um, the most loving thing to do in that situation is not to start a calm, reasoned conversation with your child about the dangers of traffic, right? The most loving thing you can do is yell, is to do what it takes to get their attention, um, to get them back on the sidewalk, whatever it takes, right? Um, it's not the time to worry about your tone of voice. Who cares what the neighbors think, right? You've got to get your kid out of the busy street. And I think that's the basic tone of voice that we have in many parts of the Old Testament. The Lord is essentially shouting to get his people's attention, to save them from real danger. Um, but by and large, um, in cycles, God's people didn't always or often or consistently listen to him. So they're out in the middle of the street busy traffic, um, at risk of coming head-to-head -head with God's own wrath against sin. So the next thing he does in Jesus' incarnation, in his death, in his resurrection, what we see there is God running into the street and pushing his child out of the way and getting hit by the truck himself. That's essentially what's going on, right? So it's the same loving parent doing a different new thing to rescue the child, right? Um, or the children. So the danger is the same, the motivation is the same, the parent is the same, the love is the same. The tactic for rescue is what we see shifting um, when the Lord sends, uh, when Jesus comes, when the Father sends the Son. So Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. He's God the Son, Yahweh, come in the flesh to rescue us. So tonight I just want to... Um, we don't have an awful lot of time, but I just want to offer like one specific illustration of Jesus's um, character in, in ways that will help us recognize him as Yahweh, um, of the I am, the Lord of the Old Testament. Just one example of a way that we see this kind of continuity between God's character in the Old Testament and the character of Jesus. There are so many that we could pick, of course, but, um, but one tonight, okay? So that's what we'll do with the rest of our time. Um, in the Old Testament, we learn that God has a soft spot, okay? He has a particular concern for um, particular groups of people, for foreigners, for fatherless children, and for widows. 
This is God's soft spot, these vulnerable groups of people. These people were the most vulnerable um, in their culture and arguably in ours um, to neglect and to, and to abuse. Right? These three groups of people, immigrants, the children of single mothers, and women's whose, women whose husbands had died. Um, and God, we see throughout the Old Testament, is totally and deeply committed to going to bat for them. Now, the scriptures usually speak of these three groups as the alien, the fatherless, and the widow. And we hear this over and over again. So, um, if you have your Bibles in front of you, we're just going to do a little bit of flipping to show you some examples. We, we see it first in the law, right? So, I mean, we see it before then, but we hear it from the Lord directly first in the law. Exodus 22, 22. So Exodus is the second book of the Bible. Exodus 22, 22. Could somebody read that? Whoever gets there first. Go ahead. You shall not mistreat any widow Okay. So pretty clear. No mistreatment of children. Um, of single parent families, okay? Then flip ahead to Deuteronomy. This is uh, still the law given at Sinai. M Moses, actually, sorry. This is Moses addressing the people and describing what the Lord has shown of himself in the law. So um, Deuteronomy 10, 18. Moses tells the people that the Lord himself the Lord defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the alien, giving him food and clothing. Okay? So you're supposed to take care of them, and the Lord himself is going to go to bat for them. Okay? Financially, turn to Deuteronomy 14. Um, Deuteronomy 14, verses 28 and 29. The Israelites were required by law to give away 10% of their harvests so that the priests could eat their fill. And who else? Who, who else gets this 10% this gift of the harvest? Yep. So the sojourner, the aliens, the immigrants, the fatherless, and the widows. Um, okay. Turn ahead then to Deuteronomy 24. Okay, so God's people are supposed to take care of them, not mistreat them, okay? God is going to take care of them, and then he, we see him providing for them financially. God's people are supposed to set aside money that goes to these three vulnerable groups of people. Okay, Deuteronomy 24. In addition to the 10%, God's people, there's another way that God's providing for them. Um, God's people weren't supposed to harvest absolutely all of the food in their fields um, or on their trees or in their vineyards. They're supposed to intentionally leave some of it for these three groups of people. So could someone read verses 19 through 22 of Deuteronomy 24? Just whoever gets there, 19 to 22. Sojourn, the fatherless, and the widow. And when you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not 
Thank you, Chris. Okay, so they're, they're not supposed to be scrupulously thorough when they harvest their, their fields. There's naturally gonna be some kind of leftovers, you know, the lawnmower, you're not supposed to like go back with a weed whacker or an edger or whatever, like the lawnmower is gonna leave some stuff, just leave it, right? Um, don't work to get every last little bit for yourselves, just leave what you naturally miss the first time for these three groups of people and they're allowed to glean to come along after you and pick it up. And we see that happening in the book of Ruth, don't we? When Ruth goes gleaning in Boaz's field, that's where this is coming from in Deuteronomy. Then skip up to verse 17. Um, and again, we have the Lord's law has this specific provision about not obstructing justice in, in legal cases regarding these three groups. So could somebody read verses 17 and 18? Um, Deuteronomy 24. So, just a couple verses. Okay. So, no perverting justice for these vulnerable people. Why? Because once you guys were vulnerable and voiceless, and the Lord went out on your behalf. Does that make sense? So remember where you were and what the Lord did for you and then you do the same. You make sure that there's justice for the voiceless. Now all of Israel knew about God's soft spot for these particular people, right? So the Psalms talks about God as the helper of the fatherless. Um, Psalm 10, the one who does justice for the fatherless and the oppressed later in Psalm 10. Um, Psalm 68 calls him a father of the fatherless and a protector of widows. Psalm 146 talks about him as the one who watches over the aliens and upholds the widow and the fatherless. So this is like a common formula. Everybody knows that these are the three groups of people that God has a soft spot for that he particularly cares about and wants to protect. And over and over again, God raises up his prophets, especially in, well, primarily in this period of the divided kingdom, to talk to Israel about how they're treating these three groups of people. Remember, we're talking about how the prophets talk about how we're not loving God, primarily by committing idolatry, and how we're not loving our neighbors, primarily by committing injustice. Well, these three groups are ones that the prophets constantly zero in on. So Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Zechariah, and Malachi all rebuke Israel when they abused immigrants, fatherless children, and widows. And the prophets pleaded for them to stop. Um, so the Old Testament, to sum it up, makes it clear the immigrants and single-parent homes are constantly on God's heart. These are the people God sees and watches out for and wants his people to care for and watch out for. And then comes Jesus, right? So we have the God of Israel, Yahweh, in person, onto the planet. And what did he do? Well, first of all, he lives through each of those vulnerable positions firsthand, right? So he and his family had to relocate to Egypt, um, refugees, right, from persecution, when he was a small child, he was an immigrant for a while. He stepped into that role, right? And then he lost his father sometime after he turned 12. Um, by the time he started his ministry, he was fatherless, right? It's kind of this random, in some ways, feels like this kind of random um, fact of the New Testament that like, where does Joseph go? Like he's off the scene by the time, but Jesus lost his father. He was a fatherless child for a while, it seems. And that meant that his mother was a widow. So he lived with her under her roof, watching her pain, her needs, 
her financial difficulties, like he was willing to walk through that. Experiencing all that vulnerability firsthand, right? And then he spends his ministry going to bat for the same groups of people, immigrants, the fatherless, and the widows. He did it in his teaching. So he says in Mark 12, um, actually, let's look together at this. Luke 20 is another place, another um, telling of that same event. So Luke 20, verses 46 and 47. Let's start in verse 45. Does somebody want to read Luke 20, 45 through 47? Okay, so who is Jesus critiquing here? He's critiquing the leaders who kind of raise themselves up, but then they decimate the estates of widows, right? So again, he's like narrowing in on this treatment of this particular group of vulnerable people and the way that he evaluates um, the lives of his people. So he does it in his teaching. He does it with his miracles as well. You remember when Jesus is approaching a town called Nain and he kind of interrupts this funeral procession? Um, he intercepts this widow who's burying her only son. And Luke says when Jesus saw her, he had compassion on her. His heart went out to her. And he said to her, don't weep. And he came up and touched the coffin and said, young man, I say to you, rise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And this is how Luke concludes it. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. So here's this widow who's lost her husband. She's just lost her only son. And we have this picture of Jesus' compassion just going out to her and raising her son from the dead to give him back to her. He understands the vulnerable position um, and grief that she was in. And he's moved um, to uphold the widow um, and the fatherless, giving this fatherless boy back to his widowed mother. And then foreigners, my goodness, think about all the foreigners that Jesus loves and heals and reaches out to, right? A Roman centurion, a Samaritan woman and her whole community, and a Syrophoenician woman, a Gerasene demoniac, um, a deaf man in the Decapolis, right? He's not ruling out people. He's embracing and including in the Lord's blessing people who've come into the land of Israel. This is Yahweh who loves the aliens, loving the aliens. That's what we see Jesus doing. And he cares for these people from the cross, right? So one of the last things Jesus does while he's hanging on the cross is to make arrangements for his widowed mother to be taken care of, right? He arranges for John to take Mary into his home. I mean, these are like his last words. This is Yahweh in the flesh dying, and he's taking care of the widow in front of him. He's a protector of widows. He's doing what he's always done, right, even while he's dying. So Jesus experiences this immigration fatherlessness, widowhood firsthand. And then he cares for these three groups of people. He advocates for them. He blesses them. But more than that, think about this. His death and his resurrection specifically eradicate those problems for each one of us eternally, right? So stick with me for a minute here, right? The gospel, the death and resurrection, is God's answer to displacement and fatherlessness and widowhood. Think about it. 
The New Testament speaks of Jesus, for example, as our bridegroom, our husband, right? And our husband didn't stay dead, (laughs) right? We, as his people, his church, the bride, we have a husband who died and didn't stay dead and will never die again, right? He was dead and now he's alive again. So we're not widows and won't be. Our groom is alive forever. He's with us. We're never going to be left without a protector, without a provider, without an advocate. Um, He's preparing a place for us, an inheritance for us, right? We're not going to be abandoned and left behind. Jesus says, you might remember, in my Father's house are many rooms. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And that's bridegroom language. Like in the ancient Near East, that's what a bridegroom would do for his bride. He'd make sure she, he'd propose, make sure she said yes, then he'd go back and build a, you know, addition onto his father's house. And when he was done building it for him and for his future wife to live in, he would go get her and bring her to be with him where he was. Um, that's what Jesus is offering to do for us. We have a bridegroom who's not going to die, so we're not going to be widowed by him. And we're not fatherless, right? So before Jesus dies, he makes this promise to his friends. I will not leave you as, remember this, as orphans. I will come to you. So here he's talking about sending his Holy Spirit. Why does the gift of the Holy Spirit mean that we're not going to be orphans? Like, what's the connection there? Well, it's the Spirit who adopts us. The Holy Spirit adopts us. Romans 8 says, you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. We're no longer fatherless. And what about foreigners, right? Ephesians 2 says that Jesus came and preached peace to you who are far off and to those who were near. So Paul says, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So we're now naturalized citizens of God's kingdom. Jesus is preparing us, preparing to welcome us home to our own country. Um, where we're really citizens. And we, too, I mean, we have this deep need, don't we, to fit in, to feel part of things, to be at home, to have a place where everybody knows your name, right? Um, Some sort of, like, permanent community where we're understood and known and respected. And we don't always get that in this life. I've been transient enough um, to spend many years without those things. But Jesus is preparing a place for us where we're not going to be foreigners, um, where we really fit in, we really feel at home and nobody's going to discriminate against us, right? Okay, so just one example. Jesus, um, as the God of the Old Testament, becoming flesh, lives through these vulnerable roles, protects people who are in them, and in the gospel, he deals with those problems, those human vulnerabilities, in an eternal way for anybody who will come to him. Um, Okay, so... As we close tonight, I just want to leave you with a couple questions to kind of think through um, in terms of living this out. I know it's late and we all are digesting barbecue. I'm a little tired. But, um, but Jesus says he's not going to leave us as orphans. So I want to ask the question tonight, like, are there any ways in which we are emotionally living like we are orphans? Like, we're approaching life as people who don't have a safety net or as children who don't have somebody to fend for them, who feel like they have to fend for themselves because nobody else will. Um, Or do we really know deep in our heart of hearts that we are not fatherless, that fatherlessness is a thing that the Lord hates um, and does away with? I um, 
one of the m more fun things about being a parent is getting to like show your kids your favorite movies. And a couple years ago, we, we watched um, Mary Poppins with our children for the first time. And I've, I mean, you see these things as an adult, and you just like process them in ways you never heard them as kids. But there was this conversation, which I don't even remember happening from the dozens of times I saw it as a kid, but I noticed as an adult. Toward the end of the movie, um, Dick Van Dyke is sitting with Jane and Michael Banks. And um, I think it's right after the run on the bank. So they're in trouble. And he says, um, and I can't do justice to his accent, which I won't try. Well, he doesn't really do justice no. to the English accent. <laughs> so I won't try it. But he says to Jane and Michael, the one, I, this, I'm quoting him here, the one my heart goes out to is your father. There he is in that cold, heartless bank, day after day, hemmed in by mounds of cold, heartless money. I don't like to see any living thing caged up. And Jane says, Father, in a cage? And he says, they make cages in all sizes and shapes, you know, bank shapes, some of them, carpets and all. Father's not in trouble, we are. Oh, sure about that, are you? Look at it this way. You've got your mother to look after you, and Mary Poppins, and Constable Jones and me. Who looks after your father? Tell me that. When something terrible happens, what does he do? Fend for himself, he does. Who does he tell about it? No one. Don't blab his troubles at home. He just pushes on at his job, uncomplaining and alone and silent. <laughs> it's such like this poignant like description of adulthood. So part of me was like, yes, that's what it's like. I knew Mary Poppins. But like, I walked away feeling like that's the whole point is like God does not intend for us to live like Mr. Banks, right? That's not good to like, just push on uncomplaining and alone and silent. Like we have a father, we have a father to look after us, to fend for us, so we don't just fend for ourselves. So that's my first question for us tonight is, are there any ways in which we haven't absorbed the fact that we are not orphans, that we are not fatherless? And here's my second question. So we have a God who cares about immigrants and single parent families. Um, and part of how he dealt, like cared for them through his people in the Old Testament is to make sure um, that there were leftovers for them, right? So here's my question for us. Like, are we harvesting all the food in our field, so to speak, like getting every last olive off the branch for our family, for our finances? Like all of our resources, all of our time and energy, are we using every last bit like to build our own house? Um, is all our emotional energy allocated to our nuclear families or our closest friends or whatever? Or like, are there ways in which we can make sure that there are intentional leftovers for the vulnerable people around us? Like God is saying, like, don't finish harvesting that tree. Make sure there's something left over. And I think so often, like, I tend, we tend to just live to the, like, very edges of our capacity in terms of finances and time and emotional energy and God is saying like leave some margin, leave some leftovers um, so you, there will be enough for the vulnerable people around you. So that's my second question for us is like are we leaving leftovers or are we using up every last bit of what we have um, for people who aren't as vulnerable? Um, so bottom line, Jesus claims to be God, not just like God in general but the God of Israel. God in the flesh, and his life, his words, his actions, 
lead us to believe that he was right. So how is that going to change us? Um, how are we going to let that change us? I'm going to close in prayer, and then anyone who needs to scoot can scoot, and we'll do five or ten minutes of questions for anyone who doesn't, okay? Um, Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. We love being a connect, connected to a God, belonging to a God who doesn't just reward the strong but cares for the weak. And we want to be more like you, Lord. I pray that you would help us first let you care for us in all the ways that you want to and promise to. And then we really want to let you use us to care for other people as well. So we pray that just like Jesus reflected the character of um, Yahweh, the invisible God, by being among us, that we would reflect your character as we know you better. For we ask this in your name. Amen. Okay, so questions. Any questions? I was like drinking from a fire hose tonight, so you can still be processing. Yes? How do you know that Jesus lost his father, Joseph? I guess um, how, yes, thank you. How do we know that Jesus lost his father, Joseph, after he was 12? Basically, he just doesn't show up again, but his mother and all his siblings do. So it's an inference, but I think it's a pretty educated inference from the Gospels. So thank you for clarifying. Yes? It wouldn't have been unusual for him to die first. Yeah, yeah. Um, the other indication is that um, if he had been alive when Jesus died, if Joseph had been alive when Jesus died, Jesus wouldn't have needed to, um, as the oldest son, he would have been the one to be responsible to care for his mother, so he wouldn't have had to make provisions if yeah, that, his father was alive. Yeah. Yeah, no. After 12, not just Well, after 12, I'm saying because the last we see of Joseph is when is the the trip to Jerusalem, yeah. When his dad, this is my reading of the story, his dad spaces out and then leaves him behind in the city. <laughs> yes? Can you elaborate just a little bit more what it means when the Pharisees, when Jesus and the Pharisees devoured the widow's houses? What, 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 does that mean? what was the context of that? Yeah, so it's a metaphor, right? That they're just like eating up yeah. <laughs> the estates of, the, of these widows. Um, I don't really know. I suspect it had to do with, um, well, I don't really know. Taylor, anybody, do you know specifically? It probably had to do with what they were expecting of them in terms of like temple sacrifices or um, gifts to the priestly um, institution or, I don't know, requirements. Really Could have been a property thing. But I do think it's really interesting that in story yeah. is the story of Jesus commending the widow for giving a mite. Yeah. Um, so it, it could have to do with um, giving expectations mm. and them having this sense of um, injustice as to what they were expecting. It yeah. Be, it could be a variety of ways. But, um, we know they had an elaborate system of like gifts to the temple stuff because Jesus talks about it elsewhere when he says, you let people off the hook of honoring their father and mother by letting them say, oh, I'm going to give this gift to the temple and then I won't have to do X, Y, Z, you know, like support my family. And so there's like some connection between gifts to the temple and support a family and it seems like they were somehow abusing that. Um, so that's, there might be more information out there, but I don't know it. Other questions? Thoughts?
Yeah. There's so much. Uh, I know there's so much that could be said, and I thought I thought I thought that you did an amazing job tonight. I guess I was wondering if I could um, get you to. Um, it, it seems like as I look at these different stages yeah. uh, in, in the story of the Old Testament, mm -hmm. it's like at each stage there's such significant connections between Christ yeah. and what's going on. There. Yeah. There's such significant foreshadows yeah. between what's going on there and then what we see later in Christ. Yeah. And I was wondering if I could maybe um, just choose one, you know, yeah. um, or whatever, and, and, and tell us a little bit about how how what's going on with Israel there foreshadows yeah. what we'll see um, even more clearly. Yeah, I mean, like, if we were going to do another series, that would be such a fun thing to do, is to be like, where do we see Jesus in creation? Like, no. where do we see him in the establishment of this family? Like, what does this tell us about what God's going to be doing? So we do see promises. Um, Maybe I'll just kind of do an overview and then if we have time to narrow in. But like we see promises all along that what we're seeing here is just the beginning of the story, but that there's like a lot more planned. So it kind of like, it's like one of those presents that like you wrap it and there's a box and you open the box and there's like another wrapped box and like you wrap open that one and there's another. So it's like this kind of constant unfolding without getting to, you know, completely to the bottom of it. But the promise to Adam is that, um, and to Eve, is that one of their offspring, their seed, um, will crush the head of the serpent, the evil one who tempts them. Um, so there's going to be some, people call this the serpent crutcher, somebody who's going to get the better of the devil, right? Um, who got the better of them in the garden. Um, and then the promise here to Abraham uh, is of this, like, this great family and that somehow his family would be like the source of blessing for all the nations. Um, but we don't quite know how that's going to happen. Um, you know, it kind of goes on from here. Like there's these promises to, um, well, promises to Moses that God's going to raise up a prophet like him from among their brothers, from among his brothers. That one day there will be a prophet similar to Moses who speaks with God face to face, you know. And then, which of course we watch Jesus do a lot. Um, and Jesus' face shines like Moses' face when he has those face to face conversations, like at the transfiguration. Um, or in the kingdom, like the promise to David that God's going to bring up one of his descendants to sit on the throne of Israel forever to rule without end. Like that never happens here. And so it's not until Jesus is coming that we're like, wow, this is like, this is the promise. Like this was the promise that there would be one king who never stops being king. Like we never knew quite how that could happen. But now that makes sense, you know, once you have someone raised from the dead. Okay, you can see how he would stay king, right? So, um, so there are all these like hints. Um, throughout the story that are kind of pointing ahead to a rescuer um, that we don't really totally understand until we see Jesus walk on the scene. Um, so that's kind of beginning to get at. But yeah, so who is it who speaks? It's like a very Presbyterian thing to speak of Jesus as like the new and faithful Adam and the new and better Moses and the, yeah, that's, yeah, in that kind of Presbyterian tradition. But like, um, the new and better David. It's like he fulfills all of these roles, um, but perfectly in the in the way that we need, in the way God intended. Um, so yeah, that's another summer maybe. But other yeah. Allows like suffering and things. Sure. Yeah. And so, uh, w um, 
Well, parents allow suffering too. It's a bit different, but yeah. Yeah, that's true. I would say that like maybe God allows that on a greater level than maybe you might allow to your Jewish or Yeah. So like, if those things are allowed, which would be like kind of the obvious first choice, like what what would what would it mean for God to be a faithful parent beyond that? Yeah. You know, is the suffering allowed maybe things that are meaningful to one's story or yeah? Yeah. Well, I mean the. Bottom line answer, so the question to repeat it is just like, how can you say God doesn't leave us as orphans? What does that mean if he actually allows quite a lot of suffering um, and even need in our lives? And in context, when Jesus is saying that, he's talking to his friends about the fact that he's going to send his Holy Spirit. So he's not just going to like pack off to heaven and just leave them. It's not like over, you know, he's like leaving town. He's going to send his Holy Spirit, his spirit, so that he will be with them. So he's not leaving them as orphans. He's not leaving them. That's bottom line is he will be with them through their suffering. I mean, look at all his disciples. Like they all lose their lives in persecution. He's not just saying, I'm going to be a helicopter mom who like doesn't let anybody touch you. Um, But that he's going to be with them. Like nothing's allowed to happen to them that he doesn't allow um, because his presence is with them. And even in that suffering, um, he'll be present. And honestly, I think like That's the deepest need of our hearts. And if you even just look at parents and kids, like my kids can cope with a lot if one of us is with them. You know what I mean? Like it's kind of amazing. (laughs) Like just the presence of somebody who loves you and is for you, um, even in situations where I can't do anything, like that's, that makes a huge difference. So I'm not saying there isn't any suffering involved. Um, But I think the bottom line there is he's not going to leave them as orphans, like he's not leaving. Does that make sense? Yeah. It doesn't make the reality of suffering any easier, but yeah. In addition, uh, sonship, what it means to be a son uh, to a Jesus, mm-hmm. and, and to even exalt it even yeah. in the midst of our suffering. So uh, God is good yeah. to us, and um, to us as, as sons even in the midst of mm-hmm. suffering, despite his goodness to the world. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that picture of Jesus, like, as the firstborn among many brothers, I think it's how, that's how Hebrews speaks of him, is it Hebrews? And it's like that sense of, like, Jesus is our older brother, And he's not asking us to do anything he hasn't done, at least generally. Does that make sense? Like, there's a sense of, like, your older brother has, like, gone before you and paved the way, and he's gone through this kind of suffering, and, like, you're going to go through it too, but, like, your older brother did it first, and he's, like, rooting for you and with you. And I don't know. For, for me, particularly emotionally, that image is really helpful. Um, so, like, we're in the same family. We're adu- like, that's astonishing to say that, like, Jesus is the older brother and we're the younger brothers and sisters. Like, how can that be true, you know? But, like, we are given that kind of sonship along with him. Um, it's kind of incredible, but it does give us a helpful picture for what that looks like. Yeah. Um, if I could just, just uh, ask you one more question. Yeah. Um, uh, if somebody really wanted to dive into the Old Testament yeah. and really start reading it, Maybe yeah. they haven't read it in a long time or they've never really read it. Yeah. Um, 
where might you suggest that they start? Mm -hmm. And is, because um, th this, um, this series, I, I hope, will be empowering for that yeah. regard. Yeah. Um, is there also a resource that you might suggest, like, hey, this will be really helpful with you, for you, yeah. as you do? Yeah, I would say two things. I would say if you want to start um, reading the Old Testament, I really think starting with Genesis is the best part. I mean, it's the best way to dive in because you see all this stuff that kind of sets up the whole story. And then it's easier to kind of dip in and out throughout it. But you get a sense of who God is. You get a sense of what he's doing in the world, what he cares about, who he's caring for. Um, so Genesis is a good place to start. Um, I could say more about that. So if you want to hear more, we can talk more about that later. But um, I recommended the first week, I think it was, um, a book called The Epic of Eden by Sandra Richter. Um, that, or there are a couple books like it, if you'd like other suggestions. Um, but The Epic of Eden is a great kind of introduction. She's the one, I think I read from it the first week about the dysfunctional closet syndrome, like where do all these things go? We need some hangers, we need some hooks. That's um, kind of what we've been doing here. That just kind of gives you an explanation of like, what are the basic chapters of this story? Like, what are the major ideas? What are the things I'm never going to be able to figure out on my own because I don't know anything about the ancient Near East? Just kind of walking you through that. It's a short paperback, but I think it's a really good companion for, for attacking the Old Testament. Um, yeah. Thank you. OK, good. Thank you, Sarah. Yeah.